0: Gemma Hill, a rising senior at Aspen High School, will interview Stephanie Palmer, associate professor at the University of Chicago in the Department of Organismal. Is that correct? It sure is. Organismal biology and anatomy, but also physics. I'm in both departments. (laughs) Okay. Great. She studies how neurons collectively encode incoming information and perform computations on the information. So we're gonna talk about the brain, which performs several classes of computation, including signal comparison, prediction, error correction, and learning. To investigate these phenomena, she works with experimentalists on a variety of systems, uh, and and the predictive coding in the retina and visual cortex of the rodent, motion coding in the fly, color vision in butterflies, and temporal coding in the zebra finch song system. What what fun research. (laughs) And from these studies and several general principles have emerged, which guide her current research, and that's what we'll be talking about. So welcome, Stephanie and Gemma. Thanks so much, Patty.
1: So I guess we should start easy. How, when, why did you decide to become a physicist? Because I understand that you were considering becoming a neurosurgeon, but you switched to physics. Was there any particular moment that prompted that?
2: That's a great question. I think when I was a kid, I had an unconscious physicist training from my dad, who's an engineer. And he was always taking things apart and helping me Hel- having me help him with that. So he he had a very good mechanical intuition and has a very good mechanical intuition and would include me in that. So I have a little bit of this kind of physics mindst- mindset. How does all this stuff work if if you pull it all apart? Um, yeah, I did want to be a brain surgeon. I went to be pre-med. And what I found it, my first year at Michigan State University was just that I absolutely adored the math and physics classes I was taking and I had an opportunity to do a research assistantship and what I was doing was uh sort of synthesizing magnetic crystals in a chemistry lab and I was you know my plan was I'm going to be a neurosurgeon I'm going to study chemistry that's going to be my ticket to med school and uh What comes of that was that I made these crystals, and then I had to go measure their magnetic properties. So I trekked over to the physics department and talked to um, uh, uh, Jerry Cowan, who was a fabulous uh, condensed matter physicist there at Michigan State at the time. And he had me do squid measurements, which are not the squid like the biology squid. They're squid uh, superconducting quantum interference device measurements. (laughs) And um, I was just enamored. I loved it. I thought it was great. And I pretty much switched from chemistry uh, over into more doing more and more physics from from then on.
1: That is fascinating. That's actually, that's so cool. Um, So I know that you're also the founder of Brains, and you've been supporting these young students in their studying of neuroscience. And I was wondering if they had assisted you in any way, or if they had shifted your mentality about problems in your field.
2: Absolutely. What's wonderful about teaching is that if you do a good job at welcoming questions and welcoming different ideas and insight, you get so much out of that. From a selfish perspective, from there's obviously just right. there's a point of doing of doing good teaching, which is to share what we, to share what we know, to share this privileged excitement we get um, from digging into the field. So, brains is a program for mostly seventh graders uh, in public schools on the south side, mostly, and I've w- developed a wonderful connection with teachers in the Chicago Chicago public school system. And what's evolved as I've worked with these young kids is how to teach them about the brain. The reason we picked the brain is that, well, it's something I work on. And it's also a great gateway. It's a great way to engage anyone uh, on math, on statistics, on physics, on chemistry, because we're all kind of intrinsically excited about how this mysterious thing in our head works. It's a Vast frontier. We have very little concrete knowledge. Uh, in I mean, we have lots of facts and phenomena, and we're starting to assemble it. But there's so much more to know about the brain. So I think it engages people. And what the seventh graders have taught me is that you have to be pretty open to what ideas you apply to this. So I always ask them, how do you think? How do you think your brain works? How do you think this uh, cockroach scurries around? Because we wind up doing some experiments on on cockroaches and.
1: They, as they you would of course. of course of course
2: you would do it on cockroaches. They can regrow their legs, which is a good feature of a cockroach.
1: Uh, I'm fascinated about regeneration. It's
2: a really exciting thing and we we would a as lizard
1: tails stuff like that
2: all sorts of Wild. domains, right? And you would love to be able to map that onto human health, say. Exactly. But even just in a fundamental fundamental biology, how the heck does that work? Uh, so
1: yeah, why does that even happen? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it's been great with 7th graders and I think um I have the most important thing is that I've adjusted how I mentor my grad students um, by asking first, tell me what you already know, mm-hmm. and tell me how you guess the system works. Then I'll, tell, then I'll tell you a bit more didactic things, and then we'll work on it together and iterate back and forth.
1: Right. So they get the general, and you learn from their general knowledge, and yep. then you carry on from there. Exactly. Very exactly. cool. So let's get into some science stuff, let's right? Let's do it. Of course. I'm aware that you study zebra finches, and I found that only the males sing, which is generally, I feel like, a phenomenon that's prompted by testosterone. However, in this case, the singing is driven by factors intrinsic in the brain. So can you explain a little bit more about your research, in particular, surrounding the finches and the temporal coding of their song?
2: Absolutely. So the broad question we're interested in is how does your brain make computations that let you execute complex tasks? The reason we focus on song, is that it's a pretty good analogy with human speech. So you can think about it like any complex motor task that we have to learn. Like playing the piano, learning learning English when we're babies, learning to speak. Exactly. It takes a significant amount of our lifetime. Yet then we at some point we stop learning and it's not as easy to learn anymore. Our brain sort of stops being plastic. So that's the big kind of theoretical physics-y challenge, like what is happening in the system that locks it in. Now, you mentioned testosterone. Testosterone does have effects in the brain. So that's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. The hormones that are there present in the baby birds do uh, affect and sculpt their brain development. But then after that happens, they have brain areas that females just don't have. So there's a huge, what's called a sexual dimorphism. There's a split in the male-female brain. um, And that lets the Males um, carry the task of producing the song to try to impress the female and get her to agree to courtship. The females still have to do the discrimination and the choosiness. So while the females don't sing, they have all the machinery to evaluate that song. So what we wanted to know was how does the male produce the song, which is a fast temporal sequence of notes. Um, this is a side note. This is a tiny bit of a tangent. Male zebra finches are not bred for their beautiful song. They are bu—they be- are bred for their beautiful plumage. So the, if you go look up online, male zebrafinch finch song, it's a little bit screechy, squeaky. Um, it's not something you would put on your, on your, um, you know, on your speakers at night to relax. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Wouldn't wake up in the morning. To
2: right. It. No, 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 no. But it's music to the ears of the female. Uh, so, <laughs> I digress. Uh, But it's a rapid, very complex gesture that the males make, and we wanted to know how that moment-by-moment temporal sequence uh, gets guided and modified. What's really neat, which if you've played an instrument, I don't know, Gemma, do you play an instrument?
1: I do. I play piano and guitar.
2: Oh, wonderful. So you know when you're practicing, so you've performed somewhere in front of maybe even just, you know, family. Mm -hmm. But um, when you're practicing versus performing, you probably have a different mindset and you have a different maybe feel under your fingertips when you're exploring something. Right. The brains of the zebra finch, and their output song also has that difference in feel and framing. So the males, when they're practicing by themselves, have a different kind of song where they're noodling around and trying to riff trying on to things. Respect it, right. right? And there's a signature of that in the brain and a different kind of temporal signature. So that, then, when they're performing to the female, and they're you know straightening up, and they're like, okay, the best one ever, here, <laughs> here it <we> is. <laughs> yes. So that's what we were exploring in that project. That is so cool. Wow. Super fun.
1: Yeah. And so let's we've done sound. Let's go to visuals, right? <laughs> right. On. So through your visual or through your research of visual optics, I see that you delved into the imperfections of the visual system and the brain's ability to correct errors to often form. What we as humans deem as a rather precise image, right? And um, do you think the eye, as an imperfect mechanism, can be improved by advancement in technology or science, or is anyone working towards an alternative, which, in which the correction would not be as necessary?
2: That's super fun. So there's a really hot interplay right now between uh, what's what's uh, you know the modern computer science, machine learning, or quote unquote deep learning, and. Uh, neuroscientist, and that's that's been fun, and it gets it exactly. You know, you have your finger on the pulse of modern research. So we'd like to know two things. We'd like to know how does biology and how does the brain get around the fact that it has to deal and use these deal with and use these squishy, imperfect parts. Exactly. So neurons have lags. If you, I like to say, if you ordered a bunch of units to make a radio from DigiKey and you got neurons, you'd send them back and be really angry. You know, yep. why did you send me this yep. noisy, laggy, crappy set of transistors? Work. Yeah, it doesn't just doesn't work. So there are ways that the, you know, kind of software of the brain gets around that. But there are also things that brains have evolved that we don't yet kind of fully understand that are maybe more intriguing. They're, they're the innovation that over evolutionary time biology has discovered that, we would like to be able to implement so separating what's a good solution to a laggy neuron problem versus what's a what's the what's this innovation that the brain has discovered that we don't know about
1: and versus do we actually need a solution to this imperfect imperfect system because right. it seems to be solving its own problems on its own even right. though it doesn't operate in the way that humans would necessarily choose for it to operate.
2: Exactly, we have to take we have to take our ego out of it and say, well, exactly. I think it should be this way. So why isn't the, why is the brain so imperfect? Well, maybe it's actually perfect for a different problem, uh, the perfect solution to a different problem. I think that's I think that's wonderful. So I think there are ways that we could go back and forth. I think there are things we can learn from the brain that could help us help us solve engineering problems. I think there are certainly computer science and engineering innovations that could help us either repair brains or make us, you know, we already use devices to be able to experience our world at a higher level than natively we can. Yeah.
1: Glasses, contacts, hearing aids.
2: Oh, you know, we're we're, ex- <laughs> we're experiencing this conversation. Everybody who's listening to us is not in this room right now. Exactly. Right? And so our ability to transmit information goes well beyond our innate capacity inside our heads. So that's that's kind of marvelous. So what more can we do? I don't know, sky's the limit.
1: All right, perfect. Mm-hmm. And my last question, which does not totally pertain to your research in general, but I recently came across a finding that said that neurons from various path- pathways, which represent given memories, often change over time. So those same neurons do not necessarily um, hold the same memories. So I guess my question is, how do organisms track the same memories if they're not using the same neurons? So how does a rat smell the apple if it's not smelling the same as it did previously?
2: Right, this is a deep question about both about how brains function and what our perceived experience means. Right. This comes up in kind of all domains of human interaction. This comes up in law. This comes up in... um a court case where you have someone testify about their experience of an event and knowing that our memories are not perfect recordings and that they get reimagined and resculpted mm-hmm. as time goes on and with our subsequent experience and our s- subsequent biases and and priors that we had going into it mm-hmm. we have to really think about ways to um kind of Understand and sometimes correct for exactly that non-stationary property of our memory, exactly. but we feel like we're the same person with the same memories as we go through life, mm-hmm. and we certainly don't have to relearn what an what an apple tastes like exactly. or smells like. At, uh, so there is a very interesting thing about the brain that it can represent the same kind of nuanced moment with,
0: with various this, neurons,
2: with various neurons, with different neurons in different brain areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your your experience comes in during the day today. I might I might have a dream tonight about this conversation where I where I replay it and I load some of it into long term memory. And maybe I'll remember ten years from now when I come back, oh, that was a great that was a great experience with Gemma. And now, you know, look at her look at her research group. Look at what amazing things they're doing. Um, I remember when we first chatted and met in Aspen. So I might I might remember bits and pieces of this. But you but...
1: don't remember the whole scope exactly. and you can't exactly remember each word.
2: Right. Yeah. And if we knew which neurons they were, they'd probably be very different. And maybe some of them will be dead, be dead by then.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So color vision and butterflies. <laughs>
2: right. The One of the really great things about being a theoretical physicist is that you get to work on a huge range of problems. So when Patty read off the list of things, I was thinking, oh, this is so great. This is why I love my job. I can work on everything from rats to rats to butterflies and back around again. We talked about zebra finches already. So butterflies are also a very beautiful organism. And we're interested in particular about the diversity of different butterfly species we see and how they maintain those different populations. So if you've ever seen one of these vast arrays of pinned butterflies, you know there are just so many out there. And they're gorgeous. We love looking at them. They signal to bird predators with these colors on their wings to, don't eat me. Um, They also signal to each other, "I'm I'm your mate, and look at what brilliant pattern I have created for you. So they maintain some of this diversity of their species by keeping their mating within their subpopulation so they don't end up with kind of think about it like you mix paint together in a pan
1: and you end up with, with brown, brown or black it, right
2: exactly we don't want a bunch of brown mixed up butterflies that are just dull and and have lost all their all their all their sparkle another way to say it is that when they when they crossbreed between species they might create kind of a uh, a cross of the patterns and then nobody kind of knows who's who anymore. Right. And the birds might also not know and then eat them. So they don't want it, they don't want that to happen anyway. So what we've been studying in collaboration with Marcus Kronforst at the University of Chicago is how the changes in wing pattern coloration are tracked by changes in the eyes of the butterfly. So the our external sensors are really labile. They're really changeable. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that in insects, changing your eye is really easy. And so one way that you can change your wing pattern color, but then still maintain your preference for that wing pattern color, is that at the same time, you change your eye and you change a little bit how you see that color contrast in the world. So that's that's part of what we're into. But maybe I haven't... Maybe, Gemma, does this... I haven't talked about the physics of this yet, though, right?
1: No, go into it.
2: Okay, so... From the physics perspective, what we want to understand is how computations change in the circuitry that does the calculation for the butterfly that says, ah, my mate, or no, not my mate, when they need to um, make that decision. And so we're interested in the circuitry that comes in from the external um, kind of photoreceptor, the cells that transmit that you know, sort of wavelength signal from the light into an electrical signal and how that turns into a computation about mate choice. So the way that we've been framing that more broadly is to think about not how the color patterns evolve, but how the computation evolves. Right. And that's a pretty new, fun direction, the evolution of neural computation. And it's part of what I'm thinking about here um, in Aspen for for these uh, couple weeks that I'm here.
1: All right, perfect. Um, oh, why here?
2: Great question. So I've always loved coming to Aspen. And part of the real benefit here is coming to, say, a workshop, like there's a workshop on COVID-19 happening right now. Um, I'm here as a different different program. I'm here as a, with a working group. So it's a small collection of physicists from all over the world. Uh, we have someone here from Amsterdam. Greg Stevens has joined us from Amsterdam right now, and we would never usually get to talk in person at le- at length. But we all work on similar problems at this interface of physics and biology, so we all think about kind of coarse graining in in the in the brain, or how we understand from a physics perspective emergent phenomena like computation in neural circuits. So this evolution of neural computation fits really well into that, and just being here with other folks. I have even struck up conversations um, with with more people on than just in my working group on this. And we get this concentrated time to develop new ideas, to work on them, to then spend more time after we've started and then do the next step and the next step. And that's what makes Aspen so special is that you have this kind of protected time to um, develop a new idea. Um,
1: yeah. And that was what I was about to ask. How does the interaction with various people who are not in your work group, how does that help you and test you in your own findings.
2: There are, there are lots of different ways. It's it's always exciting to hear about other fields. Um there are folks who think about black holes and cosmology here as well right now. Um I know absolutely nothing about that. I am a total neophyte. Um but you know you get ideas and you think about, oh, this is geometrically how you imagine that representation and to 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 be and then you can you know, kind of take your own ideas and think about them. And maybe it doesn't go anywhere, but maybe it, it gives you a little spark of insight. Uh, but like I was saying, uh, with the COVID-19 workshop being here, being here, there are other physicists who think about biology around. And when you have to, you know, go up to the tea time, at tea time or at the barbecue and say, oh, what do you work on? You know, we better have a pretty succinct and clear answer. And that can push you to clarify your thinking, but also pushes you to think about things and develop new, new collaborations that you wouldn't have had before.
1: Mm-hmm. And COVID-19 is an RNA virus. Do you do any work with that?
2: I do not, though. I, um, I can see why, uh, why, it would be why it's right? very, very, <laughs> both very interesting from a scientific perspective and also, of course, so incredibly relevant to our current global pandemic.
1: Exactly. As a woman in STEM, and having me want to go into STEM, tell me a little bit about your experience. How has it shaped you? Has, how has it shaped your research? Absolutely, I
2: have found that my training as a physicist, which I know is what you're aiming to go into, um, you'll be you'll be going off in the fall. Is that right? Do you start? Uh,
1: yeah, physics and biology, and I'm a senior, so I'm applying in the fall.
2: Wonderful. Oh, I wish you the best of luck. That's Thank you. Just. Absolutely terrific, and I hope you I hope you think about Chicago. But on a broader note, um, the training that you receive as a physicist, where it's not just that you're learning about physics, which has a deep kind of theoretical baseline f- for you to explore questions um, about you know kind of how the world works, you also get a good mathematical training alongside. A training that I find really valuable, which is just how to how to think about problems, how to think about making a model that isn't perfect and doesn't capture everything, but tries to filter out the most important bits to explain some phenomena. Like we want to explain how does this bird learn the song, and then what happens to the brain that locks it into only knowing that song for the rest of the bird's life? Well, as a physicist, we have some candidate models to throw at that and no they're not going to take in all of the biological information but that training and model building and then riffing on it and 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 testing theories and ideas is I think serves you well just being a sort of citizen of the world and also doing your own research so that's been great right. I will, oh go ahead and,
1: oh sorry and it's its own little language so you mm-hmm. have with that physics education, you learn to be part of a a small but large community, a small but mighty community. Small that... but mighty community. <laughs> I
2: think it's growing, which mm-hmm, is nice. Exactly.
1: And they they think in the same context, but on so many different issues. How does that play into the whole world of physics?
2: I think that lets um, in the in that with that training that lets you talk about different problems kind of cohesively. So for example, right now I'm working on a project on prediction in the retina, but we're collaborating with folks at the École Normale in Paris who think about prediction in the immune system, which is relevant to our earlier discussion of COVID-19. So your immune system has to be able to um, adaptively learn from past attacks, so that it can protect you in the future. But it doesn't just keep a memory of absolutely everything you've ever encountered. So there's some, not to anthropomorphize it, but there's some decision making that happens in your immune system automatically about what to keep and what to throw away. Right. And that sort of problem is also a prediction problem. And because we use the same language of physics, we can apply it to this immediate thing, say, in the retina on a short time scale or your immune system on a longer time scale, and think to ourselves is there a, a common biological principle here that's at play in both of those? So exactly, that's the right. common language element. Right. Yeah. I think another great thing that I'll bring up because um, we're both women in physics, um, from the time that I started to now, I've also seen that the, that STEM has just become more and more inclusive. Mm-hmm. And I expect that to continue. Um, I love that Aspen has always been really welcoming to me and I've always felt completely on equal footing with with everyone here, and right. I think that's been lovely in our field, and I hope it I hope it continues um, yeah. as on this path.
1: And that's of course valuable because it wasn't always that way. And it that's, used to be. That's right. Very very difficult.
2: That's right. That's yeah. right. And I, I I hope that part of that expansion is because as um, as physicists we we know there. There isn't, any, there isn't any
0: signal there that would make excluding someone useful, so we just throw it out. So, Gemma, as a young woman heading into the STEM field, how has your experience here as a gopher at the Aspen Center for Physics helped you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually
1: been immensely valuable to me because as a woman who wants to go into STEM and who grew up in such a small community of Aspen, it's difficult to really grasp what being a researcher and going into science will look like and what my future would hold and will I work at a lab and what will I research but here I get to interact with all the physicists and I get to learn about what they're doing and how they're doing it and what they're studying and that's so fascinating to me I mean everyone here is studying something similar but also slightly different as their peers and they've all they've all found a life in STEM and that's what I want to do I mean my quest is to be a happy scientist and here I get to experience that firsthand and I think that's very valuable
0: Wow, what a great team of people to interview one another. So thank you so much, Stephanie Palmer, who's an associate professor at the University of Chicago, and Gemma Hill, a future researcher, (laughs) perhaps at the University of Chicago, but we don't know yet where, but from Aspen High School right now. If you'd like to know more about our programs here at the Aspen Center for Physics, you can Google... Aspen Center for Physics very easily. You can call me. I'm Patty Fox, and I am happy to answer your questions and welcome you to our many um, outreach opportunities. And if you're a young person listening, please do give us a call if you're interested in gophering in your future. Thank you to KDNK um, in Carbondale Colorado and to all of our listeners.